Well, welcome everyone uh, to the Eastside Freedom Library. I'm Peter Ratcliffe, the co-executive director. Um, this evening, I'm sitting in for my colleague, Clarence White, who was instrumental in putting this program together. Uh, what we're doing this evening is exploring a reform of the healthcare system, uh, engaging a new book, uh, the book, Why We Revolt, um, and its author, Victor Montori. Um, and Dr. Montori came to us uh, through the advice and intervention of our old friend, David Unowski, um, who many of us know as the founder and longtime manager uh, of the Hungry Mind Bookstore, um, which he ran for 34 years. And David is still, uh, I guess we could say David's become a kind of eminence grease um, in the literary world, in the, in the Twin Cities. And we're so thankful that he brought Dr. Montori uh, to us tonight. What we've been trying to do at the Eastside Freedom Library when we have a chance uh, to bring an author uh, into engagement with our community is we try to invite a couple of interesting people uh, to read that author's book and offer some insight and engagement before we go to a more open discussion. And so David is gonna introduce Dr. Montori, but I wanna take the pleasure to introduce our panelists. Um, they are State Senator John Marty, who has long been a voice uh, for healthcare for all and, and healthcare reform here in Minnesota. Uh, Rose Roach, who is the executive director of the Minnesota Nurses Association um, and a great voice within the labor movement and the healthcare industry. And Jigni Ugin, who is the vice president of SEIU Healthcare Minnesota, um, the first Tibetan refugee to hold a major position in an American union. Um, and Jigni has been active in both the community and the labor movement. We're delighted that he and, and John and Rose could take the time tonight uh, to join with us. Our plan is to ask you, the audience, uh, to use your comment or chat function, whether you're on the Zoom uh, connection or the Facebook page. Um, when and if you have questions or comments, please type them in. Uh, my colleague, Carla Reilly, who is handling the tech uh, for this program and is an extraordinary collaborator with the Eastside Freedom Library. Carla and I uh, will be trying to gather your questions so that the panelists don't need to be keeping one eye on the questions and one eye on what they're thinking. Uh, we're gonna try to do the one eye on the questions for them um, and we'll bring the questions forward. So that's the plan. Um, let me turn things over to David Unowski um, who is gonna introduce Dr. Montori and then moderate uh, the discussion. And I'm going to turn myself into a logo. Um, David. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, this discussion is prompted by this book, Why We Revolt, A Patient Revolution for Careful and Kind Care, written by Dr. Victor Montori, published by Mayo Clinic Press. Uh, proceeds from the book go to Victor's organization, patientrevolution.org. You can look up their website at, after this discussion and you'll find a lot more good information. Books are for sale by our bookselling partner, Subtext Books, and there should be a link somewhere. If not, 
You can go right to Subtext Books and order the book. Uh, I'd like to introduce Victor. Victor Montori works at Mayo Clinic Press in Rochester. He's a diabetes doctor. He graduated uh, medical school in his hometown of Lima, Peru, completed postgraduate work at Mayo Clinic in the US and at McMaster University in Canada. He's considered a patient's doctor. He won the Karis Award of Patient Nominated Recognition for his compassionate care. He's a researcher in the science of patient-centered care. He and his colleagues have authored over 650 research articles. He was a full professor by age 39, and he's one of the most cited clinical researchers in the medical world. In 2016, he founded the Patient Revolution, and he's going to do a little reading from his book and talk about it, and then we'll hear from the other panelists. Please welcome Victor. Uh, thank you, um, David, and thanks everyone who is uh, uh, joining us today here on the Zoom and also on Facebook Live. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, honor and a very humbling uh, opportunity to spend uh, these hours in the night uh, here together. Um, it's difficult to choose what to share about uh, why we revolt, although it's a thin book, it's not like a, it's not like a big tome or anything. Um, it, it does have two, perhaps two different voices in it. One that is a commentary, an essay really about what healthcare is and ought to be. And another one, which is a series of stories and the descriptions of, of, um, of that situation and the situation we want to go to. Um, I've chosen some, some passages on the commentary side. And um, if we get the time, I may sneak in some of the other types of, of stuff um, and, and give you a flavor of what the, the book's tone is. And, and perhaps the panelists may, may comment on this as well. Um, it, for those of you who, um, who are fans of this, the first two uh, words in the book are George Orwell. Not entirely sure how that I made that choice, but that's that's what it turned out. And I talk about this book being um, uh, documenting my sense of what is wrong about industrial healthcare. Industrial healthcare fails to notice patients. It standardizes practices for patients like this rather than caring for this patient. Efficient specialization and narrow job definitions drive industrial healthcare's focus towards organs, diseases, or test results. Rigid protocols and fear of deviating from them miss the person. Systems that prioritize access and volume place very little value on the length and depth of the interaction between patients and clinicians. Forcing encounters to be brief and shallow speeds patients through consultations in which clinicians cannot appreciate their patient situations fully. Failure to notice is also the effect of encounters bloated with industrial agendas, such as documentation and billing which draw attention away from patients and toward the computer monitor, distracting from care to document it. How does care then take place when the patient is unnoticed, sometimes little more than a blur? Judging from the stories that clinicians and patients tell, care happens almost by mistake when someone takes exception to or ignores the protocols. In the absence of these accidents, of these caring mistakes, the industry is capable of harm through unintentional cruelty. As it makes care accidental and cruelty incidental, industrial healthcare marches on to produce fortune and power. By focusing on its industrial goals, healthcare forgoes caring. The harm is done not only to patients. Industrial healthcare is killing the healer's soul. Enforced productivity depletes clinicians. 
and clinicians is a term that I use throughout the book to describe anything, anyone with the privilege of the bedside. Industrial healthcare is killing the healer's soul. Under efficiency pressures, clinicians cannot draw meaning from fleeting patient visits. They cannot get support from sped up colleagues. They feel abused and without love and unable to love. Burnout, divorce, and suicide become inherent to the work of healthcare, the healer's curse. Industrial healthcare has stopped caring for both patients and clinicians, for everyone at the front line. Many of my patients, my family and I have benefited greatly from the wonders of modern healthcare. Expert surgical teams, clean and efficient facilities with all the necessary equipment, carefully organized services that collaborate and coordinate, well-trained professionals who cordially attend to those who are sick and invest each one with dignity. All this is possible. It happens, just not routinely or by default. This is the should be that I have the great fortune of enjoying on the good days. On the bad days, this should be lurks between tightly scheduled slots in the furtive half smile of another clinician rushing to the next patient in the sigh of the staff who had hoped to give more prompt service. It screams from the notes I get from family members or their friends asking for a second opinion or telling their stories, some of them horrific tales of perfect medicine for their own person or for the wrong problem. It pulls at my heart when I see what has happened to the patient in front of me. Files filled with tests and procedure results, 12 medications, multiple specialties, and notes that reveal no one ever stopped to notice. On many days, I am afraid I am that clinician, that cog of the machine, the one who fails to notice. Simply noticing and acting on what is noticed makes patients more likely to receive care that makes intellectual, emotional, and practical sense to them, care that responds to their needs and is consistent with their views of the world and their lives. This is care that recognizes and respects that patients may need to devote their scarce time, energy, and attention to matters that compete in priority with the administrative and self-care tasks healthcare has delegated to patients. This is care that responds with competence, science, creativity and humanity to advance each patient's situation without overwhelming patients or creating new ills. Um, and I mentioned that in the chapters of the book, I was hoping that uh, those chapters will ignite in you, the reader, the urgent need to join us in destroying the difference between what is and what should be, in abolishing accidental care and incidental cruelty in making care the intentional end of our work, not the means to achieve industrial goals, in ensuring our best medicine reaches everyone who needs it. Clinicians and anyone honored by the possibility to care must notice each person in need of their care and act in response. They must appreciate each person's circumstance, concerns, context, biology, and biography. To appreciate each patient, the clinician must throw moorings that, for a moment, partner the boats. Traversing rough waters unhurriedly, elegantly, together, patient and clinician can, with compassion and competence, co-create a trajectory that advances the patient's particular situation. Such careful and kind care for all must be the end result of a patient revolution.
this is uh, read from the from the introduction uh, of the of the book. I'm going to connect that with the epilogue of the book, so you get sent. You probably feel like you just read the whole thing if I just uh, mentioned this to you. Um, Reclaiming patient care as a priority of healthcare organizations and of clinicians is our goal. We want elegant care in which clinicians are present and, and able to know, notice each patient and appreciate their human situation in high definition. We recognize it all requires innovations to achieve careful and kind care. A system of patient care oriented by solidarity and not by greed will be necessary to prevent precious resources from leaving the system as profits, artificially creating scarcity. One of the ways we will know we have arrived is when the polarity of the healthcare world inverts, when policymakers, payers, and managers are held accountable to clinicians and patients, when they see their work as ensuring patient care without disruptions, distractions, or extraneous exertions when they see patient situations in high definition and work with patients to ensure their care makes sense to them. Today, managers use quality and performance measures to judge clinical care and to document to payers that clinical care is a good value for the money. When the polarity inverts, we will be holding managers and funders accountable for creating and fostering innovative and sustainable systems that allow patient care to happen routinely while avoiding incidental cruelty the flow of value will be turned on its head with every resource dedicated to caring for all. We must confront the apparent policy choice before us. Some believe in a profit-based competition field system that overserves affluent patients and underserves everyone else. They value this system because they believe it is capable of driving the flourishing of important innovations in care. Others believe that social justice is preferable guaranteeing universal access to healthcare as one of the ways in which societies advance their citizens' health as a fundamental right and their capability for their personal flourishing. As with many dichotomies, this may be a false one. A patient revolution must promote new thinking to uncover the ways in which social justice, innovation, and sustainability should not be traded off, but be a joint expectation of any system built on developing value for patients. Nothing else can satisfy our goal of careful and kind care for all. None of these shifts will take place spontaneously. In fact, my reading of the forces at play is that they continue to lean heavily toward industrial healthcare. So can citizens and professionals change this situation? I have chosen to speak of a revolution because reform is not enough. It is time for patient revolution, not only because it has patient care as its goal, but also because I believe citizens Healthy people, patients who are not too sick to mobilize, must lead the way. I believe clinicians will join soon, while others will follow later as they free themselves from the corporate shackles, relinquish the spoils of industrial healthcare, recover their faith, and start believing in our probable success. And it's about probable success that I wrote the new uh, uh, preface to the book. Um, in which I touch on the COVID pandemic, uh, because I think it offers us hope. Um, I write the second edition of this book with, uh, to coincide with a global disaster. A pandemic of febrile breathlessness has galloped into our lives along with fear, disinformation, and isolation. 
to outsmart the virus, we have to stay away from each other. At the moment of this writing, the virus has decimated the closeness, the kiss, the handshake, the hug, the presence, the touch. This pandemic, however, is like an urban redevelopment that accidentally unearths ancient ruins, revealing something new about our present selves. COVID-19 has made evident our core humanity, that care in our hearts and in our hands. To outsmart the virus, we have to be apart, but we reduce social distancing to physical distancing and solidarity to cold. We found ways to sing from apartment windows and rooftops, to play bingo from across the street with lonely and frightened nursing home residents, to leave gift boxes for waste collectors, to build tents on bullfighting arenas, to house the homeless and to come together to ensure everyone had a meal. We sent poems, cards, letters, and notes to strangers and to strange friends and relatives. The world slowed down and families experienced conversation of the unhurried type. Clinicians responded to the privilege of the bedside by showing up and caring, despite the risk of contagion. They reached out to patients with ongoing conditions, they, those pushed away by overwhelmed hospitals, and cared for them where they were, minimally disrupting their lives. Communities turned toward caring for each other. The care of patients became more careful and kind. Our revolution was validated. Its goals became feasible, existing here, now. We must not forget this. Industrial healthcare, as this book describes, long ago stopped caring. The pandemic simply exposed with even more clarity the corruption of its mission. National and corporate leaders made the same calculations as this did opportunists and profiteers. Getting more ventilators was too expensive and a breathless elderly person asked his clinician to save the available ventilator for the breathless young person. Masks and other protective equipments were made scarce and expensive and exposure to the coronavirus increased unnecessarily. Because of this, an exhausted clinician returned home to sleep in the basement, quarantined from her small children. Their distant giggles were made to seem closer by her phone, her kisses pushed against the hard surface of the screen. Because of this, visitors were kept outside of hospitals and nursing homes, and those inside were left to suffer without a hand to hold and to die alone. Eventually, we will become immune to the virus. Then the smiles will appear from behind their masks. Handshakes will become ungloved and hugs tightened. With fraternity no longer the vector, we will learn to trust the air between us and we will touch again. The singers will descend from their balconies and rooftops onto our plazas to sing song of togetherness. The lonely will be touched, the scared will be relieved, but then we will wake up. Most likely, this new day will not find us hugging or singing with strangers, but conducting our business as usual. The post-pandemic economic crisis will argue urgently for deepening the industrialization of healthcare, for making healthcare more efficient, standardized, automatic, artificial, and generic, more profitable, less caring, a better reflection of a society of people who mobilize for productivity will quickly forget how solidarity carried them through the long night. Once again, a dawn of care, <laughs> kindness and love will seem poetic, utopic. This book argues for a different day after, not a day for celebration because the old normal of cruelty and greed are ready to make their day, this day their own. Rather a day improbable, but no longer impossible in which we will recognize in each other the scars of that long night a reminder of a common fate, a date in which we will remember that our human business is to care for and about each other. 
we will remember that we have done this before and we will remember the songs. And at daybreak, we will revolt for careful and kind care for all. Thank you, Victor. Um, I'm gonna ask John Marty to respond. John is a state senator. He is the author of the proposed Minnesota health plan, which would replace the health care system, the insurance system with health care for all to keep people healthy and enable them to get the care they need. Uh, John, what do you have to say today? Thank you, David. And when Clarence sent me this book, uh, which I had not heard of until he sent it and asked to participate in this, um, I didn't know what to expect. I figured, well, if he was sending it to me, maybe it was about healthcare policy. And in many ways, um, as one who's been a long time advocate for universal healthcare to cover everyone and to have a better society, it's not just replacing the payment system in a way to ensure everybody gets care, but to make sure they get good care. And our healthcare system, when I say people I care about good, high quality care for everyone, keep thinking all the reform we've done for the last 30 or 40 years, either to save money, which usually costs more. Um, we've been doing that for 40 years and, and it's gonna improve quality. And some of our quality measures are killing people. I mean, literally, and they are at a minimum taking doctor and nurse time away from the patient in order to fill out forms. And it's done is, I haven't used the term industrial healthcare the way Victor does, but it's a perfect term for it because the people in charge of it they know what an efficient business is and how we're gonna do it. And they're trying to make healthcare instead of a caring enterprise into a business. And so they think I was gonna read a couple of sentences from his book when he talks about greed. Some people believe the only reason medicine moves forward is money, competition and profits drive innovation. They believe that money motivates brilliant people to go into basic science to discover cures. It's what makes people study medicine, nursing, therapy, or pharmacy. It's what keeps clinicians up at night on call, but compels them to jump onto a helicopter amid a storm to retrieve a donated organ for transplantation. I don't think so. Those are his the words I'm going to end his quote with. He says, I don't think so. And I think we recognize the importance of that. It's about caring for people. And every time the reform of the last 30 or 40 years tries to do it, well, we can we got to make it more affordable. So how are we going to do that? Well, if we get these accountants in here and we get these bookkeepers and lawyers in here, we'll find a way to squeeze a little more efficiency out of the people working at the bedside. You know, the thing you need around the bedside, which I think the book was so articulate in saying is time. You need to be able to listen to people. And when you see doctors and nurses time taken away from it to fill out forms for billing and everything else, you know, we're going the wrong direction. Same thing happens with the quality of care. Instead of using the doctor's judgment and everything else, we're gonna have them check these boxes, which takes away their mindset of thinking about things. Instead, have I done this? Have I done this? Have I done this? And the idea that doctors or nurses are gonna provide better care, they're gonna work harder because they're paid more for it is bizarre. Yeah, people wanna be paid more, everybody wants to. And some people deserve to be paid more, a lot more. But the idea that somebody is gonna replace that doctors aren't doing this and nurses aren't doing this because they care about the outcome of their patients, but only that they get more money. If you start with that premise, you're, you're robbing those other values that we wanna do that. I wanna, I'm a professional, I wanna do a good job for people. I wanna make it look good. 
So we forget all that and all in the favor of greed. I'm gonna quickly point out two other things that really hit me. One is a theme he pointed out numerous times in the book about how we blame the patients. And uh, page 83, I had marked, he has a patient named John, an archetypal patient. And he talks about how blaming the patients is like blaming the canary in the coal mine. They're the ones who are hurting and we expect the patient. We want more we a little skin in the game. And somehow if the patient works harder at it, they're gonna care more about their health. These are people who are desperate already and struggling. And I just thought he captured so well the importance of taking care of others. And the third one was about when he was talking in his solidarity section and how we're, how we're using the money to make it more efficient. He talks about the big bucks are paid to creative, paid to creative insightful and decisive executives who are tasked with making healthcare sustainable and innovative. It is neither creative nor insightful to eliminate less profitable services and exclude or weightless patients whose care hurts economic performance. And yet all of our reforms to improve quality are doing that. You look at the analysis of the pay for performance schemes, the quality measures, and they always punish the low income clinics. They always punish the safety net hospitals because their patients have worse outcomes. And that's a bizarre way to do it, but that's the way we've been headed in our reforms in so many years. And when I look at that, if you want a concrete example, St. Joe's Hospital in St. Paul, I think it's the oldest hospital in the state. Um, it certainly cares for a lot of the neediest people who are struggling with addiction or struggling with mental health issues. And Fairview, M Health Fairview, whatever they're called now, um, is closing it down because they're losing money on them. I've written several letters trying to protest it with the board and um, trying to change the law so we can't allow them to transfer those beds to other more profitable areas unless they're going to replace them with mental health or addiction beds. But they don't want to do that. And why don't we change it? I mean, even if they were a greedy healthcare system that wants to get rid of its least profitable areas, why don't they come to the state and say, look, maybe you're overpaying some folks for some surgical procedure. Maybe you should take some money from there and pay more for the mental health beds. If we're losing money on that, why don't you try and change the system? Instead, oh, we just, they don't wanna deal with it. They just don't care. And so to me, our healthcare system is very sick. And exactly when he described, yeah, he said it in his presentation, we want a caring and kind system. And that's all we need. That's all patients want. And I think there's so many people, so many doctors and nurses and healthcare workers who want to do that. And yet the healthcare system knows that, nope, everybody works on greed and only on greed. And therefore we're going to have to squeeze every drop of blood out of them, even if it means taking time away from doing their jobs so they can fill out our forms. So I, I want to thank you, Victor. If, if, if we are trying to, in like my legislation, if we're trying to map out a route for where we go with healthcare reform, your book and your work is the soul of what we're trying to do and why. So thank you. Thank you, John. Um, and remind everyone that they can submit questions on Zoom and the chat function or on the comment space on Facebook. Our next responder is Rose Rewich. Rose is the executive director of the Minnesota Nurses Association. She's been recognized as one of the 100 most influential people in Minnesota in healthcare and is on the board of Healthcare for All Minnesotans. Rose? 
Thank you. Um, good evening, fellow patients. Dr. Montori, esteemed fellow panelists and the incredible staff of the Eastside Freedom Library, greetings of health from your nurses. Uh, Victor, thank you so much for this important inspirational book. It is clear, doctor, that you get it. You, like nurses, clearly understand healthcare, that it's about centering the patient, their needs, their care. In the book, you state, quote, healthcare has shifted its focus from patient care and instead has honed in on achieving goals that are industrial and financial. The nurses couldn't agree more. It's the very essence of the healthcare system problem. We simply must reduce the burdens to care for providers to allow for more, as you say, listening and kindness while removing barriers to care for patients. And that barrier is overwhelmingly tied to the cost of care. I'd like to highlight a couple other salient points that you've made about the cruelty of our system, which I prefer to refer to as our healthcare marketplace. And it's actually well, the first quote I chose, you read uh, about the post-pandemic ec economic crisis we're in, but it's always good to repeat, right? So I'm gonna do, <laughs> I'm gonna reread the portion of that, that quote, cause I think it's so powerful. The post-pandemic economic crisis will argue urgently for deepening the industrialization of healthcare, for making healthcare more efficient, standardized, automatic, artificial, and generic, more profitable, less caring, a better reflection of a society of people who mobilized for productivity will quickly forget how solidarity carried them through the long night. Once again, a dawn of care, kindness, and love will seem poetic, utopic. The de-skilling of the healthcare professions and the depersonalization of healthcare itself has been in play for some time now. The pandemic has created this environment that is allowing industrialized healthcare to say, see, we can provide you care without even seeing you in person. Telemedicine, hospital room cameras being monitored by someone off site, even nurse robots. We simply cannot go down this path. We must redirect the delivery of care from being mechanical to becoming intentional, thoughtful, and based on the foundational relationship between caregiver and patient. You also noted industrial healthcare is killing the healer's soul. Industrial healthcare has stopped caring for both patients and clinicians, everyone at the front line. So very true. Nurses are deeply concerned about what they refer to as chart, chart, chart taking them away from the bedside and patient care and instead putting them in front of a computer that is more about coding for billing purposes than it is for patient health outcomes. Nurses speak to the moral injury they suffer daily at the hands of industrial health care, lack of necessary staffing to properly care for patients based on acuity needs, lack of preparedness related to the pandemic, specifically around personal protective equipment, procedures for safe care like cohorting of COVID positive and negative patients, lack of testing of employees while claiming at the same time that nurses who become infected were most likely to have been infected through communal spread, even though the hospitals in many cases are still not providing proper safety equipment and protocols for the nurses and frontline workers and doctors who are working directly with COVID patients. It's clear to the nurses that it is in fact, the doctors, nurses and frontline healthcare workers that need to be steering the healthcare ship. And we're very appreciative for the eloquent way in which your book makes that obvious. 
For decades, the nurses have been leading the healthcare justice movement to dismantle the industrialization of healthcare and to rebuild a healthcare system that's all about caring because nursing is about caring. Your book, Doctor, lays out the roadmap for the what? A healthcare system that, as you say, is, quote, fueled by greed, excluding millions from care, consumes more resources, and produces worse health outcomes, compounds its limitations, your money, or your life. As uh, it also lays out the why. These, as you say, these industrial actors satisfied their greed by promoting maximal healthcare spending. Yet they are, there are other actors, such as insurers and other payers, who satisfy their greed by promoting minimal healthcare spending. The patient is caught between these two, seduced by the former, frustrated by the latter. The nurses see it the exact same way. It is why we have launched a national campaign to implement Medicare for All and in Minnesota to enact Senator Marty's Minnesota Health Plan, both single-payer healthcare systems. At its base level, single-payer is about simplicity of the healthcare financing system, but at its heart, it is about changing how we actually deliver care. At the end of the book, you offer two steps that we can take to bring a patient revolution revolution that will be required to achieve the system we all need and deserve. You say first, stop accepting healthcare as an industry and your healthcare as its product. Yes, yes, yes. Healthcare is not a consumable good. It is a product. Don't decide to have a coronary bypass one day because Alina has a discount on that particular procedure. It doesn't work that way in healthcare. Second, you say start a conversation. Use the language of patient care, some of which we have explored here. I trust that our cause is just and that we can change the way people think and act with our words. Our cause is just. Our movement is growing and our struggle to win the recognition of healthcare as a human right is on the horizon. Thank you again for this amazing work, Victor. We'd love to find ways to partner with you and your organization, The Patient Revolution, because together we can and will change our healthcare world for the better. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Our next person is Jigme Ugin. He was born in Kalimpong, India, graduated from Delhi University. He's got diplomas in political science, English, and economics. He's the first Tibetan refugee to be elected as a labor union leader and he is the Vice President of SEIU Healthcare Minnesota. Check uh, me. Thank you, David. Uh, and what, what an amazing discussion here, uh, real, honest, and all, all coming out of this book. So Dr. Victor, thank you. And uh, folks who are watching this, you need to go buy this book. Uh, I, I would say this is the, the, the the Vinci code of healthcare books. So Victor would be Dan Brown of, uh, of, of, of uh, writing about it. It's got suspense, it's got drama, it's got reality. Uh, it's, it's got some really like, you know, some tear joking, some like triggering and frustrating moments. Uh, the reality of what healthcare is in this country. Um, Sister Rose already pulled on my favorite quote here, which kind of brings uh, to the focus of what uh, Victor is trying to say here, which is stop accepting healthcare as an industry and your healthcare as a product. 
that defines the American healthcare system. And then there's this piece where you write about that the patient revolution must reject the notion that time is money or that a minute like a dollar can be easily exchanged for another minute. These really hit me hard, right? And folks who are gonna read this book, there's a lot of stories that Victor brings in from Peru. And it really hit me, I mean, personally, because I, like uh, David said, I was born in Kalingpong. It's a, it's a small town in the foothills of the Himalayas. You know, for the 30 years that I lived there, Never once did I experience a situation where cricket, Bollywood, or religion became secondary issue to healthcare, right? I mean, living in India where uh, you have 1.3 billion people and they have a, a, a free public healthcare. I'm not saying that they have the best healthcare industry, uh, but they have the cheapest medication, right? And this is what the book talks about too. And when I talk about cheap medication, the cost of surgery in India is about one-tenth of that of the US or, or Western Europe. I know so many uh, healthcare workers who have immigrated from India who go back for major surgeries, dental work, or even for prescription glasses. And now we are in the richest country in the world where living debt-free and bankruptcy is but one serious illness and one medical bill away. So when we talk about healthcare, which is beautiful, and I, I'm gonna keep holding this because like I read this book and then I went back and marked a lot more and uh, it's, it's gonna be a reference for me. You know, the kindness and the compassion piece that is lost in healthcare, right? The, the reality of healthcare being a human right is far removed as we move into it. Uh, you know, here, when we look at Minnesota, uh, except for, I mean, Regency Hospital uh, and Prairie Care, Minnesota has not a uh, nonprofit or uh, government owned tax exempt status and charitable mission uh, for hospitals with the sole goal and intention of providing quality care for patient, to patients. And as Senator Marty talked about, St. Joe's, the closure of St. Joe's, the closure of Bethesda, the only COVID center being closed and then converted into a homeless shelter so that the workers there really, you are in a rock and a hard place. You cannot even fight it, right? And that's what I, it goes back to when uh, you talk about the industry. It's not just the industry, it's the system, right? When we talk about, and the book really talks about when, when, when uh, the, the COVID had, on the other side, right, when I was talking to our members, now our members uh, are in hospitals, in nursing homes, clinics, long-term care, uh, uh, home care, uh, across the state, they were fighting for PPEs. They were fighting for masks, right? But they did not stop going to work a single day. Today, they are negotiating with these employers who have completely forgotten and are actually treating uh, these workers like you should be happy that you have a job, right? The whole concept of hero pay, it was just words, right? Nobody were given a hero's worth. So this COVID actually opened up a lot of things 
that we had, like it's there, but it's now more real. Uh, our workers are seeing it real. The employers who stayed at home while, while our members were on the front line, the, the, the disparity is coming out more fluid. The, the piece that this book, uh, one of the things that Victor, I really, I mean, at some point I really wanna talk about with you is the, the piece on uh, racial disparity. You do touch on it a little bit, but for me as a person of color, I see this a lot. Uh, now here in the state of Minnesota, we say it's the healthiest state, uh, the best bike lanes in the country, you know, but only if you're white. Right, Minnesota is still ranked the second worst in the country for racial inequality. Like compared to white people, um, members of racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to get preventive health services and often receive low quality services. And I was like doing similarities of what you saw in Peru. It's like, this is happening here. We are all just talking about the structural racism, which is like deeper into the society, right? COVID-19 again, hitting blacks and other ethnic minorities created a new focus of racism in healthcare. And this is a pattern we've seen since AIDS, uh, prenatal care, you know, black indigenous and people of color, uh, BIPOCs have been affected and have not received the right treatment. As an immigrant, I can say, right, I, and these are conversations that we have, we don't go to the hospital a lot for preventive care. It's only if we start bleeding and we see blood, we're like, oh, I think I need to go see the doctor. Uh, we call it the, the windshield wiper theory, right? You go to, a, uh, you know, uh, to get your windshield wiper fixed, by the time you leave the garage, you're walking out with the new radiator, right? So that is the fear in the healthcare system that people of color have. And it's just like one quick example that I want to talk about was, uh, I was reading about this algorithm that helps manage healthcare for 200 million people. And they found that it was systematically, the, the computer was systematically discriminating against black people. Now the journal Science said that the people who are identified as blacks were given lower risk scores by the computer than white patients, leading to few referrals for Medicare. So the algorithm was actually copying human behavior from the past, right? So when we look at this uh, book, when we talk about the patient revolution, uh, and as uh, I think Sister Rose, talked about it before we started the uh, actual discussion about how we need to fight uh, racial, climate, uh, housing. If we do not succeed in any of these, we will not succeed in winning healthcare. They are so intertwined and uh, uh, success of one is a success for another. So again, going back to this book, I really appreciate uh, Victor, you giving us food for thought, uh, bringing in concepts that, uh, like I told you earlier, I wish we had more doctors like you who would be honest and real about care, uh, about the compassion, about the work that goes in play. Uh, and I really appreciate you writing this, uh, your thoughts, sharing it with us. And I really encourage people to 
buy a copy, buy a copy for your neighbor, buy a copy for someone who really doesn't understand healthcare and, 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 and keep an extra just in case. So thank you, thank you again, Victor. Thank you very much. I something happened to my computer. I hope you can see me. But Peter, can you uh, read some of the comments or questions? Sure. I did. You want to give Victor a chance to respond to the comments if he wanted? Sure. Go ahead, Victor. Or go ahead and read them, and and Victor, you can respond first. Uh, no, I meant to the panelists. Okay. Go ahead. Is sure. But keep it short. <laughs> I'm just going to say I'm speechless, but then, of course, then I'll keep talking and that will be a contradiction, wouldn't it? Um, the generosity of all three of you is uh, overwhelming uh, to me. Um, uh, I am very self-critical. And so, of course, I pick up Jigni's point, which is the book has a huge, huge, massive blind spot. And the blind spot that it has, it, that, it, that it didn't directly address the one of the major carelessness of our society right now, which has to do with the issue of uh, racial injustice. And um, uh, I'm going to defend a little bit myself to only to say uh, that um, when we speak about seeing the patient in high definition in bio, in biology and biography, uh, that has led a colleague of mine to take that and begin to develop a new competency for clinicians, which she's calling situational literacy, in which it would allow these uh, clinicians to begin to understand the experience of illness and of care in light, not only of the biology of the patient and what might be happening in their own lifetime, but the centuries of discrimination and abuse that may be uh, affecting both the experience of care, the access to care and the care that they receive very much in light to what uh, Jigni has observed with the um, algorithm that uh, had embedded in it uh, some structural uh, 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 racism in it. So um, uh, I think that that's one start, but with everything that we talk about in terms of care, and I will finish here, uh, Peter, uh, with anything we talk about in healthcare, we have to be careful that we cannot fix structural problems in society at the bedside. You know, we, we might want to do our best to try to minimize its impact um, and be aware of it so that we can construct care plans that make uh, emotional, intellectual, and practical sense to people that account for those things. But the, the fight for a more careful society, one that cares for and about each other without discrimination as it cares for the planet, which uh, Jigni also brought up, is actually a fight that needs to occur in the, pu in the public, in the political sphere. And those, those of us that um, are called to care at the bedside uh, must also uh, be ready to be in that political sphere, in the public arena, ar arguing, articulating the case and advocating for care, not just in the professional space, but also in the public space. Great. So um, let me remind everyone that if you have questions or comments, please use the chat here on Zoom or the comment function uh, on Facebook. Um, there are several questions and comments about uh, the role of electronic medical records. 
Uh, as a labor historian, I'm struck by kind of the pattern of uh, technology creates problems. And so we create more technology uh, to solve the problems that have already been created. Um, and I wonder if, uh, Victor, you in particular, do you want to say something about the way the introduction of electronical medical records has not produced uh, better quality care? Um, I wouldn't be as pessimistic. Um, the electronic medical records are a natural evolution of our technology. We, we, it's crazy to be relying on, on unavailable pieces of paper that can only be approached uh, physically. Um, uh, COVID has actually highlighted the value of having this in electronic format, which has allowed us to pivot to forms of, of care that did not require any of us to go into the office and, and look, for the, look for the file to be able to understand what happened to the patient last week. Um, there's evolution on that that I think is in the right direction, allowing not only for those records to exist, but for patients to access them directly and uh, even the possibility of co-creating those records uh, in the near future. Um, I think there have been uh, enormous distortions uh, with their use associated with the spirit of their introduction and the spirit of industrial healthcare. In other words, once you introduce this tool, the way it is used, it reflects the values of those who deter, you know, direct its deployment and, and its use. So to the extent that it's used to document care, to support audits and support higher levels of billing, then it's no longer a, a document to uh, for the clinician to remember what has been decided, to communicate that over time and with colleagues and to help integrate and coordinate care, but rather a bloated set of piece of information, many times completely fictional, physical examinations of body parts that were not examined. You know, I, I usually in my presentations talk about Mrs. Jones' prostate. You know, it's some, some cut and paste go wrong. Right, um, and so uh, uh, so it so we have to be careful. The, the tools, the tools in it themselves are, I think, for the most part, value neutral. It's their implementation and the spirit of what of, of the design of its features, the features that get highlighted, made easier to use, and so forth, that tell you what it is about. And when it's easier to uh, cut and paste and bring parts and create bloated. Uh, 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 notes so that you can command higher levels of reimbursement and you design the tool with clicks so your eyes have to move away from the patient so you can click in the right place and that's considered favorable because it makes a killing for the organization that invests in those records it that's what corrupts uh, its purpose and I think the intention, I mean, electronic medical records were a key component of the Affordable Care Act, and uh, there were a lot of incentives for people to adopt them, and, and many people begrudgingly did so because the incentives were there, you know, it was very good. But it's also, it's modernity. It comes with the times. It makes it sustainable. It, it, many, it disrupts patients' ability. You know, how many times have you been waiting for a test result that tells you whether your cancer is back or not? And, and, and you call the office, and the doctor doesn't return your call, and, and, and you're in anguish when you can just go directly into your record and look for it yourself, 
And so, yeah, there might be some downsides to that, but fundamentally the opportunity to reduce anxiety and, and, and avoid the error of not following up on test results might be reduced. So I wouldn't be pessimistic about the tool. I would like to say that it is the context of industrial healthcare that makes everything, including something as electronic medical record, a potentially uh, negative uh, disruption, uh, produce a negative disruption in care. Peter, I would have- Please, John. Out. Yes, go ahead. I want to comment on this well, and I'm glad the way Victor wrote that in the book about talking about how much time people spend on it and so on. The, in the comments, Alita Borud, who I'll mention is another medical doctor and was about a thousand votes shy of becoming one of my Senate colleagues last November and would have been a wonderful addition to the legislature. But she mentions in her comments, studies estimate up to a third of hospital costs related to billing and coding. Mayo just spent more than a billion on a new electronic medical record to better capture revenue through billing and coding, but reduce the specificity and accuracy of provider to provider communication. That is, so I, I very much agree with what Victor is saying, but also, in other words, I wouldn't call it value neutral. I'd say it's a big plus in some ways, but the way it's being used is focused on how we do it. And doctors say, I have to check, did you look at this? They're all designed to upcode, all designed to get more money in. If we took out all the billing, forget the billing part of it, and just use medical record information to keep track of patients, it could be a gem of a tool for people. And so I agree, it's value neutral in the sense they're good from it and bad from it. But the bad from it is because of our choice, not because of the nature of electronic records. Thank you. I, so, sorry, Peter, I want to bring Please. it back to the point of care. So one of the, one of the I think, I mean, I, I can't begin to, again, thank the panelists for their uh, warm words. I mean, it's, a, it's phenomenal. But, but one of the things that I want to highlight about the book is that it has to do with care. And one of the points that I think tries to make is that if you were to set up an electronic medical record system in a healthcare system, and you were to start not from how do we set it up so that we can do better financially, but how do we set it up so that we can support care better, you probably will come up with a different product with, with some features that will be highlighted and easier to use than others that would actually reflect your primary purpose. Right now, um, one of the ways, so it used to be that clinicians will call each other, talk to each other uh, to coordinate the care of a complex patient, that you will talk to the patient, maybe bring them excessively into the office, but talk to the patient or call them up and try to talk to the patient about difficult news, even bad news. Increasingly, we are resort, resorting to just type it into the record and, and because the record is available, people will find out that the information has occurred. So we, we, we introduce another problem, which is the illusion of communication simply because it's somewhere in the record. And that has also created isolation among health professionals who now essentially are, are writing letters to no one because nobody's reading what they're writing because who's gonna go through all the stuff that was added for billing to find that nugget of wisdom, which is now hidden in those records. So all that, all that content with so, with, with so little information and, and, and hides the wisdom of those clinicians and isolates them further, I think further burnout. You know, I had a... Uh, Please jig me. Yep, thank you. So since we have uh, Victor and uh, uh, John Marty here and uh, Sister Rose, I want to talk a little bit on the book. In the book, you talk about uh, cortisone and how, we, uh, you know, 
you call it the world's most uh, effective medicine and placed uh, by uh, Mayo, Mayo Clinic for just $1. And in 70, after 75 years, it still remains in, in a, a expensive and uh, vastly available. And in, in contrast, when we talk about, uh, think about Frederick Banting who discovered insulin and refused to put the patent and uh, his name on the patent and, you know, and, and sold it again for a dollar. And uh, today when over 30 million Americans rely on, uh, uh, and you being a diabetic doctor, you, you know, we talk about how this uh, pharmaceutical company price gouging, you know, about 1400 to $1,500 a month. But then something amazing happened in Minnesota with the Alex Smith Insulin Affordability Act, which was, uh, you know, which went to uh, effect in July. And just hours before the law could even take effect, uh, pharma filed an injunction claiming it violates the constitution, right? So there's this one hand on one side and which you talk about the pharma, right? How do we close that gap, right? What is the care essence of that within the patient revolution? Um, I've, uh, I've only been uh, close to the Capitol uh, without having to storm it outside of the Capitol in, in Twin Cities. Um, uh, when there was a, uh, a demonstration with this with um, Smith family to talk about uh, Alex Smith and and the possibility of it. and I it's the only time I've actually given a, a public speech in that sort of environment I felt feel very strongly about the issue of affordable insulin and uh, your point is well taken um, there is a um, there is a cartoon from the New Yorker which I I have uh, used in my talks and uh, and then of course, I, like every good cartoon, it happened in reality. So the cartoon shows a, a boardroom, and the, the the person at the head of the table, the chairman of the of the board, uh, is has is saying, um, "It will save countless lives, but to what end?" And he was, you know, he was clearly arguing for. Uh, and then, of course, Secretary Azar goes to Congress and is told, can you guarantee that the vaccine, the COVID vaccine will be available to everybody? And then basically says, yeah, but if I, if I start putting price controls, what will be the incentive to develop the vaccine? It will save countless lives, but to what end? You know? And I think, um, I think we are seeing in different agents, uh, in different economic agents within, within healthcare that, that they have forgotten that corporations were set up for public good. And pharmaceutical companies were great partners of, uh, of researchers because they provided the opportunity to bring those, the, the insights of the research into practice. We're seeing it with the vaccine deployment, right? The, those, the, the work was done by federally funded uh, biotech, uh, bi uh, biology researchers forming biotech companies, then joining up with the big pharmaceuticals for, for scale. And, and that's a phenomenal model, public-private partnership uh, for public good. It's when we start holding the executives accountable for the performance on the quarter, uh, quarterly performance, and then putting that performance on the stock market to be their incentive, that source of their pride, that we distort the decision-making process of those companies, which for the longest time were in the service of the public, the service of the patients. So I think it's, it's not unreasonable to think about um, um, a, a, a challenge from a, from a legal framework perspective. Um, in which we start asking the, the, the government, the state, to say, can you become mission oriented? Can the government say, look, in 
like we did with sort of tried to do with the vaccine. You know, if we're going to make sure that every person with diabetes will have access to insulin like they have access to water, right? I'm just going to make that happen. Okay, challenge accepted. Who can, who can step forward and make it happen? And then we would like to see private public partnerships that will bring the price of insulin, bring the price of all those things down and make sure that people can still um, uh, put them out there and, and make a good living, but not, not the exorbitant profit-making on at the expense of, of at least anxiety, if not death, of those people who cannot access uh, that 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 medicine. So I think we need a, re, a, a reframework of every a reframe of every aspect of healthcare, um, uh, and, and pharmaceutical is, is just one of them. Devices in Minnesota, which is a strong component of the Minnesota sort of vibe in relation to healthcare, it's another area that needs you know the incentive if the incentive to invent. I don't think sincerely comes from the fact that I'm going to make a killing, which of course nobody should be making a killing in healthcare. Um, uh, you know, it comes from the opportunity to use my ingenuity to save lives, to make lives better. There is no bigger calling, and we just have to make sure that people that in, in do that can have a comfortable life and be rewarded for that. But excessive profits? Why? If if the excessive profit takes away the opportunity for people to enjoy that innovation, then it's 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 a um, it's a betrayal of the spirit of the innovator. So there continues to be discussion. Some very good points about electronic medical records, and I encourage you all to read the chat. Um, let's see. I, um, I'm going to take the privilege of asking a question myself, um, and, and I think that it's a challenging question, and, and that is, where is the momentum going to come from to transform the system? And, and I think that we're very fortunate tonight that three of our speakers represent different layers of the healthcare system, the doctor, the nurse, the other workers who support the doctors and the nurses in providing care for the patients. And I wonder, how do you see doctors, nurses, nurses' aides, LPNs, um, janitors, custodians, other food care, food providers in the hospitals. How do you see the workers in the hospital setting working together to address the issue of how their industry functions? Is that a place to look for momentum in promoting change? Um, I'm going to want, I would like the panelists to also have a, a you know, their oh, yes. so I, but I'm just going to briefly say that um, um, I, I, I do not know where the momentum is going to come. I do not know what is going to be the trigger. We know that when things happen, you know, fundamental changes occur, that one can only in retrospect see that there was where the tipping point occur. It's hard to tell. Uh, when you're at the moment that you've actually, you know, make that so so many times you feel like oh this will do it and then it doesn't, right? I mean the uh, the situation with George Floyd, you know, killing of George Floyd. Okay, so that's going to be the uh, 
I don't know, I mean, might not do anything at the end of the day, you know, or maybe it, it will keep momentum and it will change fun, you know, we'll get an, a second era of, of civil rights, you know, here. I, I don't know, I can't mm -hmm. tell. Um, I do know that this will, uh, this will not come from the industry itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I do know that health professionals, because I've asked, you know, I, I, you know, last year when I could travel, I, I've given like over 70 talks and most of them are to colleagues and everybody, you know, has the same response. You know, this is, makes so much sense. We, we got to be doing this, but, 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 you know, I don't know how we're going to change. I, and I tell them, oh, you know, but your patients think that you have all the power. <laughs> and, then, and then they start looking at each other, you know, like, we don't and and so they're so it's almost like an abused abused spouse right there there's this learned helplessness among health professionals that that just simply mm. i think i think they need organization i think they need direction and i don't know that it's going to come in, internally from clinicians um could be from a next generation perhaps of clinicians but i really hope it will come from the citizens because the moment it happens that citizens care the, the thing that inspires me is that picture you know from the marsh selma you know you see you see Martin Luther King and the other black leaders at the front line, but they're not, you know, they're not alone. You see all these other black people at the front, right? And so I think it's gonna be the same, the same thing is that we're gonna have, you know, citizens, you know, leading this, but very quickly, all the health professionals that depend on the industry as is are going to realize there's something much better waiting for them after the after our revolution, and they're gonna join them in the front line to change this. Thank you. Rose? My question. Hi, sure. Um, Hang so, on, David. So I think where the momentum comes from is from us, and um, and I say that in this in this venue, um, individual clinicians or workers inside of the healthcare system cannot take on industrialized healthcare by themselves. They just can't there has to be a collective voice. And someone in the chat did mention doctors and nurses organizing into a union together. Here, here, brother, I couldn't be more excited about that idea because I honestly don't know how we begin to take it on unless we are united uh, together. And that it also means to do the organizing outside of the you know, system itself, which is the patients. Every single one of us our patients. Mm -hmm. At some point in our lives, we need health care. That's just a fact. And so having these kinds of opportunities, Peter, that you provide for these conversations one-on-one -on -one with one another, bringing more and more people into the movement to show them hope, to say there is a way that we could do it differently and we could center patient care and kindness they want to hear that they they many feel hopeless they don't they're like oh my god it'll never happen right i mean we're up against this bazillion dollar um you know giant and how do we be the david that takes them on we can be the david we just have to get together we have to cross pollinate in our justice movement because health is innate to all of us and it is a part of racial justice. It is a part of poverty justice. It is a part of um, economic, or excuse me, um, environmental justice, housing justice. It, those are social determinants of health. They all impact health at the end of the day. And so, um, so it isn't going to be easy. It isn't going to happen overnight. But this is what will be a catalyst. And I do really think 
that the pandemic has, as do the doctor said, um, exposed this system for what it is. And I think more and more people are much more open now than they've ever been to having the discussion we're having here tonight. Great, thank you. Jigme, do you wanna add something to this? Uh, those are amazing. I think, uh, you know, we follow what Rose said and we could get this done. Right? I mean, absolutely. That is the reality of it, right? But, you know, the the underlying thing about, like, especially being uh, working with healthcare workers for the past 18, 18 years, one thing I've realized is uh, the first step is to acknowledge it, right? Within the system, there's no acknowledgement. Uh, I talk to immigrant workers, healthcare workers who are taking care of the most vulnerable people, but unable to be with their parents back home. Right? These are the pieces, the pieces within the system. When we look at it, the system has one of the most diverse group of uh, ethnic race uh, representation. But when you look at uh, who's on the top healthcare leadership position, it's a handful of people of color, right? These are the issues, like what is the recruitment? What is the trajectory and pathway forward support development and promotion for people who actually are the voices who are facing this crisis, right? Uh, and bring them in so that you change the system based on people who are impacted the most. Thank you. David Yunowski, you, you had a question you wanted to bring up. Well, I was just wondering if there's examples from other countries that we can learn and some good models. I know that we spend 17.1% of our gross domestic product on healthcare, and I can list dozens of countries that spend about 10%, so less than, less 40% less than we do, and yet their results are better, but I don't know if the, the really kind of care is any better, but are there countries we can emulate and find out some things from? Victor, or any of you? Um, I, I actually personally think that is a flawed um, question, not a question, flawed analysis. I mean, there's a lot of comparative analysis of different healthcare systems and in terms of access and in terms of affordability. And um, just like I think uh, we want care for this patient, not for patients like this, I think we need healthcare for this community, not for communities like this. I think that the that, that that countries have the healthcare system that uh, that were natural, that were that are consistent with their ethos, with the way that that that, that communities built and what inspired, and it changes over time. I mean, the UK, for instance, the the NHS will be impossible today, right? A price in stature, you know, that would be impossible for the last 40, 40 years. It was possible with the post-war solidarity that emerged from having survived the war together and having to rebuild the country. I wonder what other country is, is gonna be in a position of having survived the disaster and having to rebuild it. Perhaps there's an opportunity in that, in that parallel to see what kind of thing will, and I'm actually quite concerned that in the United States, there are multiple countries in this United States. The situation in the South is, it requires, a, I suspect, a completely different healthcare system than, say, Minnesota. Hmm. And uh, not in, maybe not in the macro details, but certainly in the kinds of things that, that the citizens of these different parts of the country are willing and ready to do to take into care for and about each other. And so to the extent that healthcare reflects the commitment to care of a particular community, it takes a, a particular shape. 
And, um, and so I don't know that we can do that. I can tell you that we have experiments in different places that we can learn from. And in our organization, the patient revolution, uh, patientrevolution.org, we have patient revolution fellows. And these fellows have come from all over the world. And so we are trying to gather the best experiences that those people have. One of our fellows, incidentally, uh, until very recently was a, rep a physician representative in the union of physicians in Norway. And so she's bringing some of that expertise into our conversation within the patient revolution. But we have folks from, from several parts of Europe, South America, and Asia that are contributing to, to our thinking. Because again, not, not in every country, but in every place within those countries, there are pockets of care and they're worth emulating uh, with, in a way that reflects our, our local ethos and our local values. John Marty, please. Yeah, two comments on that, one of which is, in terms of looking at other countries, the one thing I would suggest is that Taiwan, 25 years ago, they decided they were becoming a more industrialized country. They wanted a better healthcare system. They actually sent teams of people around the world to see what worked best and so on, and they plugged it in. And in many ways, they spend, I mean, I think there's 6% of their GDP, 6.5% as opposed to our almost 18%. And they have an excellent healthcare system for it. I would argue they should spend a little bit more than the 6%, maybe 7%. And they'd have one of the best in the world. Um, but I do think, yeah, we should be looking for what's the right thing here. And again, there's a comment about we don't have a sustainable means of funding rural healthcare. We need to have different challenges in rural communities than we have in the core cities, different challenges in the immigrant communities and elsewhere. But I, I think if we design a system that's based around patients and their medical providers, not based around money, um, and I do think that's possible. The, the analogy to Taiwan is they said, we're fed up with what we got. And if you wanna hear why we should change it, well, because we can do better than this and because our system's blowing up in our face. Um, we keep trying all these new reforms, half-baked things that are supposed to save money and we're spending twice, literally twice what the rest of the world spends on healthcare. With maybe 10 exceptions, we spend more than half, but far, far less than we do. So um, no, let's, let's design our own best system the way Taiwan did. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to call the end to this, that we don't have more questions coming in. Um, any of our, let, let's, let me make one more call. Someone want to pitch a question before we close this down for the evening? We'd said we'd try to give in an hour, a little bit more than that. Or any of our panelists, a last comment. Yeah, I, I, I would like <laughs> John. I, I would like to read one paragraph from one right. chapter of this book because sure. I think it's important. I mean, everybody's struggling, everybody's suffering. It's a dark time. And we have to recognize that the reason we're passionate about this is because we believe in caring. We believe in care for and about each other as a way out of our own personal miseries, but also as a way out of our, commun our communal miseries, is solidarity and caring for each other. And the book has a chapter on love. And it's always been a struggle because people say, well, what do you talk about love in healthcare? No, it shouldn't have, there shouldn't be any, you know, as, you know it's, people are more embarrassed to talk about love in healthcare than they are, they are about talking, uh, talking about profit in healthcare, which, you know, that should, that should tell you something. 
but the the chapter in love um, finishes uh, with this with this uh, paragraph, and I, I think it's a uh, it's what we need to reflect is that's what healthcare needs to be is to go to create possibilities of the relationships of love. How is your father? Are the kids still swimming? You look tired. Are you getting enough rest? Her doctor asks, remembering his patient's worries from three months ago. The patient loves that her doctor remembers. She feels heard, seen. Invisible connections are formed, others strengthened. She, has, she was not sure if she should tell her doctor this, but she's struggling with her oldest son. The doctor leans forward. She lowers her gaze and her voice. He touches her hand. Love, not time, is of the essence. Her son is in trouble. Perhaps her sugars are high because she is worried sick. Go on. Her doctor listens, cares, loves, maybe. Victor, thank you. That's, that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you for generating this conversation tonight, giving us an opportunity to bring these perspectives together. Um, those of you who are, uh, have been watching, uh, let me say uh, this is going to be available. A video of tonight's conversation will be on our YouTube page uh, and will continue to haunt our Facebook page uh, as well. One of the things that we've learned at the Eastside Freedom Library is that in the period of this pandemic, more people are watching our videos after events have happened than are watching them live. So there's no shame in watching it later or encouraging your family or friends to watch it later on. It's easy to do. Um, if you're not uh, receiving our newsletter, if you're not on our email list, please go to our website and, and go to get involved, click on mailing list and give us your email so we can let you know about what else is going on. I wanna thank Carla Reilly for her work putting the technology together, Clarence White for his work in putting this evening together. Um, I wanna thank Victor for writing a great book, John Marty, Rose Roach and Jigme Ugin for sharing their thoughts with us. Dave Yunowski for having the idea to even do this. Um, and David, shall I give you the last word? I'm happy to do that, especially since you've muted yourself. There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope everybody will think about buying the book and also look at Victor's website, patientrevolution.org. Thank you all. And thanks for the people who watched and participate. Thank you again. Thank you, Victor. Uh, thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. Uh, thank yes. you so thank much. you so much. Thank you, Victor. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all. I hope we uh, our paths cross again and we can do some magic together. That Absolutely. Sure it happens. We'll make happen. it happen. That's right. <laughs> We're organizers. It. <laughs> It'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank Bye -bye. you.